worry and anxiety are rampant today in this episode the very first episode of the sleep whisperer podcast we answer three key questions what does worry look like are there physiological reasons for worry what are good morning and evening routines to stay worry free Dhruv Purohit is the host of the Broken Brain podcast, a top 20 health podcast with over 10 million downloads. He teaches listeners how to improve their brain performance and mental health through their diet, lifestyle, and everyday biohacking. As an entrepreneur, Dhruv is also the CEO of Dr. Hyman Enterprises. and the ultra wellness center a functional medicine based clinic that specializes in treating chronic disease through personalized medicine let's get started hey everyone i'm deepa light functional medicine practitioner author and yogini and you're listening to the sleep whisperer podcast the only sleep podcast with conversations and meditations i'm on a mission to share profoundly insightful sleep conversations with global visionaries that merge together functional medicine and ancient wisdom breathe in bliss through weekly guided meditations and let yourself enter the land of dreams together Let's unravel the pieces, get to the roots and understand the right tools to transform your sleep completely. Through this podcast, I want you to dream the best version of yourself. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, Eva, a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on your show and also thank you for creating a show. I think especially for the indian population even though i'm sure you have people from all over the world that are listening i think it's great to bring you know india is such at the forefront over history with health i mean so much health innovation and ancient knowledge it came from india so it's only right that we continue to bring the latest science research and conversations back to the population i mean look at the biggest trends here in america you know i live in los angeles the biggest trends right now which have been ancient indian technology for a long time are like turmeric and tulsi and coconut and so many other things that again came from uh this great country of ours so uh thank you for the work that you're doing and thanks for starting this podcast i think a lot of people need it so uh yeah so i'll start off with the origin story so um I am an entrepreneur and on the side I host a podcast. So I've been building businesses pretty much my adult life. And when at a certain point in time, I have a business partner, he's a very well-known doctor here in America. His name is Dr. Mark Hyman. And we have medical clinics and we have um, you know, digital courses, we have physical products, we write books. You know, he has over uh 13 New York Times bestsellers. We have a whole publication team. We do a lot of stuff. We have an incredible team and we put out a lot of content um, out there in the world of health. And I've been traditionally somebody who's been primarily behind the scenes, uh, a business operator, a CEO and a business partner. And I enjoy that. I enjoy building teams. I enjoy bringing people together to achieve business success and also to create businesses that can 
can give back to people. And the way that I do that is we teach a lot of information about health and we also give a lot of free content away to help people understand how to be healthy. So at a certain point in time, I just felt like I needed to mix it up for my own schedule. I like doing the behind the scenes stuff. I like working on spreadsheets and doing the math and figuring out financials and business strategy and marketing. But I thought I actually want to step into the host chair, just like you're doing right now. So after we launched um, a very wildly popular documentary, it's an eight-part docu-series called Broken Brain, which helps people understand that if we want to fix our brain, there's so many people that are out there that feel that they have a broken brain, their brain is not working as good as it used to, they feel that they're aging rapidly, they feel like their memory is not as good as they used to have it, or they might be suffering from a much stronger chronic disease or have worry about a chronic disease and developing that in the future like Alzheimer's or uh, what have you. So we realized how much worry people had when it came to that area of brain health and how precious the brain is. So we decided to make a documentary to show the latest science and development in this world of functional medicine, which is all about getting to the root cause of why diseases are happening. And basically the premise of the documentary was if you want to fix your brain, you have to fix your body. Our brain is not an organ in isolation. It's not something that's completely disconnected from our body and has no interplay. Even though we do have something called the blood-brain barrier, which separates our brain uh, from a lot of the uh, different things that our body goes through, our brain is holistically connected to our body and so is our mind. So if we really want to leverage our best brain health, we have to work on the body. And so that's what this docuseries was all about. We talked about how sleep, which is fitting because obviously that's what your podcast is about. We talked about how sleep impacts the brain. We talked about how digestion and our gut health impacts the brain. We have this nerve in our body. It's the 10th cranial nerve. It's the longest nerve in our body. It goes from the base of our head all the way down, all the way into our gut. And it's called the vagal nerve. And that, uh, that nerve creates this connection between our body, but also specifically our gut and our brain. And the crazy thing about it is that we get, we get many more messages from our body up to our brain rather than our brain down to our body. And why that's so key is that so many people think that our brain is running the entire show, but there's many other parts. Uh, even though our brain is extremely, extremely important, it's actually our body is often telling our brain what to do and then a feedback loop happens from there. So this is pivotal information that a lot of people didn't understand, which is why we made a documentary out of it. It was incredibly successful. We had over a million people watch it online and we gave it away for free. And then off of that, the audience said, we want more. We want to continue the conversations around how to improve our brain and we want to go deeper and deeper. So I got excited from stepping out from behind the scenes to step into the podcast chair and I just decided to start create a, um, a podcast. So that's how it started just out of my own interest and also mixing it up. I think all of us get to a place in our life where we want to do something new, right? I'm sure that's a little bit of the reason that you started this podcast is we want to have more of an impact. We want to try something. So for me, I love to sit, research, and interview incredible people and share their knowledge with my audience. So that was the primary motivation. I didn't think it was going to be a big hit, but eventually, like all things in life, if you keep at it and you continue to just focus on providing value, you know, sometimes if you're lucky enough, 
markets take off. And uh, what's been great is I know you said a, a million, but, but actually we've had 10 million plus downloads for the uh, podcast, which is uh, fantastic. A lot of listeners in India uh, too. So uh, that's the journey of how it all got started. And today we are talking about how worry impacts sleep. This is a big subject because a lot of my own clients struggle with it. And there's a little intersection between worry and anxiety. But before we go into it, I must say that what we're talking about today is not clinically diagnosed mental health conditions. We're talking about worry as it can be habitual, uh, tipping over into anxiety and definitely plays a very big role with sleep, both as a root cause uh, impacting sleep as well as a symptom of poor sleep. So there's definitely that bi-directional axis. But uh, what do you feel that worry looks like? What does somebody with a habitual worry, how does it play out in a person? Yeah. So I think worry is a big topic and it's often unaddressed because sometimes we talk about extreme sleep disorders, like really severe insomnia. And then sometimes we talk about things like depression impacting sleep, right? A lot of uh, functional medicine doctors talk about that. And for most people, even if they are, you know, some people are suffering from that, you know, my heart goes out to them. Most people find themselves in the middle where they're just dealing with the day-to-day -day challenges with slowing down the monkey mind. Right? So we all know this idea of like the monkey mind, our mind is so anxious, it just keeps on going and going and going. And that's where I often see worry being a big factor that prevents people from getting in a good sleep rhythm, which is why also, you know, we suggest it as a, a topic for today's podcast. So what that looks like is you're in bed and you're trying to, you know, slow down and quiet the mind so that you can focus on going to sleep. And then the mind comes in and says, but what about this? Did you think about that? Did you think about this? And then that worry becomes uh, a cycle and more worry creates more worry. And sometimes people even worry about worrying. And, you know, we already know that from the World Health Organization and here in America, the uh, CDC, the Center for D Disease Control, we know that sleep and lack of sleep and insomnia is a global epidemic. And one of the interesting things is if you look at the podcast stats that are out there and a lot of the top books being sold on Amazon, the sleep category during the coronavirus epidemic, COVID-19, shot up a ton. I think a lot of people found themselves in this place where they were having a hard time sleeping and they were worrying a lot or maybe dealing with the different anxieties that they had. So we know that it's a big issue. And I think anybody who's listening to this podcast can relate to the idea of wanting to slow down, but then finding that they can't and that their brain isn't quote unquote shutting off. So that's what worry looks like. It interferes and prevents us from slowing down so that we can actually go into rest and relaxation in the parasympathetic nervous system inside the body. So when you're saying worry, is it then just a sympathetic dominance where it's everything where you're just that sympathetically dominant? In fact, yoga, there is this whole right nostril, left nostril. And it's very interesting that sometimes when you have a late dinner and uh, typically you're advised not to go to bed when it, you've just eaten a heavy dinner. But in yoga, there's a saying that if you've can't avoid and you've eaten this late dinner and you lie down on your left side with your right nostril facing up, you're actually allowing the sympathetic 
site to be dominant so that you can keep uh, your food is digesting even when you're lying down after a heavy meal. So sympathetic dominance is pretty alarming here because uh, people also have gotten to the stage where they feel that sympathetic is bad and that's not it. So there's definitely that it's all about balance. We need that sympathetic for various function, but it should be at a point where it slows down in the evening, allowing you to fall asleep, which is what doesn't happen. And um, so worry impacts both sleep onset, so it doesn't allow you to fall asleep, but what is more alarming is that it impacts sleep maintenance. So people wake up at 2 a.m. and it, the, that worry actually magnifies many, many times. So whatever you are worried about at night seems to be terribly magnified in the middle of the night where you can get the, all the symptoms, racing heart, panic attacks, and the same thing just doesn't appear the same the next morning. So there's this alarming difference between that time zone, which is also the time where cortisol is spiking in sleep. So that's what I said, there's this whole bidirectional axis now, it's a vicious cycle, uh, Drew, so where you worry both affects your ability to fall asleep and then if you had cumulative many nights of poor sleep, then your worry is getting magnified. So if it's a vicious cycle, then where can someone actually begin to tackle it? Yeah, so I think when we think about tackling worry, and worry is a spectrum and it has multiple root causes that both relate to the brain and the body. So when we're looking at tackling it, the easiest place to start is actually checking in with ourselves throughout the day. So much of worry that people are surprised by is they come into bed. So when they're actually ready to go to sleep, they come into bed on fire. And here's what I mean on fire. Their thoughts are on fire and their body is on fire through a combination of things, which we'll get to in a second. So the first thing is that we don't often even know where we stand. You know, I had a, this um, uh, doctor who was on our podcast uh, a few months ago. Her name is Dr. Joan Rosenberg. And she wrote a book called 90 Seconds. I forgot the name, but I'll send it over to you so you can include it in the show notes. But uh, she talks about basically the eight unpleasant feelings that people feel and how the challenge isn't feeling those feelings. The challenge is these feelings take over when we're not present to them. And if we simply get a chance to be present to what we really feel, we prevent us from the buildup of those feelings later on. So some of those feelings include sadness, shame, helpless, helplessness, anger, embarrassment, disappointment, frustration, vulnerability. Now, throughout the day, whatever your tasks are, whether you're with your family or you're at work, things don't always go the way that we want to. We have reactions to life. And within those reactions, sometimes we have an unpleasant feeling, right? Again, one of those, sadness, shame, et cetera, et cetera, vulnerability. Now, the challenge becomes when we don't let ourselves feel what we want to feel or what we're actually feeling. When we say, oh, that's not an issue. I'm not going to address it. Oh, I just got off that work call and my boss is upset with me and I feel shame right now. 
instead of addressing it, I'm just going to go eat something. I'm just going to go move on to the next thing. So throughout the day, there's a whole host of experiences. And one of them is mental, where we go through different thoughts that we don't process and we don't actually check in on. Then when it actually gets time for bed, we're rushing around during the day, we're making dinner for the family, and then finally it's ready to sleep. We might shower and go to sleep. We've never actually checked in with how we feel. So the first component is, is if we don't check in with ourselves throughout the day and say, wow, you know what? I don't feel good right now. I feel, you know, nervousness. Okay, well, why do I feel nervous? Well, I feel nervous because I'm about to do something new. I'm about to make a video or do a podcast for the first time. And I'm feeling nervous because I'm feeling vulnerable because what if it doesn't go well? What if I'm not as good as I thought I would be? Okay, that's fine. Well, what does the science show around that? The science shows, you know, there's a Dr. Kristen Neff that we just had on the podcast today. And she is the world's expert in self-compassion. And she talks about that when we actually are feeling some of these unpleasant feelings and we check in and put our hand on our heart, there's actually science and studies around this or on our neck or on our stomach or on our abdomen. And we say, okay, I'm feeling a little nervous right now. Okay, I'm feeling a little vulnerable right now. It's okay. And then we can even talk to ourselves. Drew, it's okay. You're doing something new. You're going to feel a little nervous. It's okay. You're feeling a little anxious right now. We're going to check in and we're going to say, it's all right. That's an okay feeling. Or I'm feeling disappointment or frustration because my partner did X, Y, or Z. Okay. You feel disappointed. Maybe what do you want to do from here? Maybe you might want to talk to them. Okay. I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to them. So if we're checking in with ourselves throughout the day, the chances are we're not going to stack all the pressure on our mind in the evening to deal with all the unexpressed and unfelt emotions of the day. So that's always the first place. It's the toughest place for so many people, which is awareness, because we have to be aware enough to be aware, but it's actually one of the best ways to not come in on fire in bed. Now, that's the mental side of it, and there's a lot more there. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, and I'm sure also, you know, in, in, um, in, in the tradition of Hinduism in India and Ayurveda, they, they think of sleep as a mini death, right? Every night, your ego is worried about its survival and its identity. And so the fear is right before bed, right before we essentially have a mini death, which is our ego is not aware. Now we go into the subconscious. There's this fear of protection of identity. So our ego is trying to tackle on everything at the same time. And by worrying, it creates its sense of identity. Worrying is a way to preserve our identity on a spiritual level, right? It's, there's practical things to worry about. There's things that might be immediate fears that are there. But the research has shown that 98% of what people worry about is not a practical thing. It's not something that immediately can be handled or resolved or addressed. It's still something that's important and it's still real and it's still something that people fear. So right before our mini death at night in sleep, our brain is like, you got to handle this. You got to take care of that. You didn't do this. You didn't that. You're not good enough. You're not this. You're not that. All these thoughts come to you at one time, but most of those thoughts are pent up energy throughout the day that hasn't had a chance to be checked in with. So that's the first thing that we can do is practice self-compassion and actually check in. Now, the thing about it is that it feels uncomfortable to check in 
because when you do face it, you have to acknowledge that it's real. And just by facing it and, and acknowledging it doesn't mean that the situation is going to be resolved. Sometimes there's something in your life. We have this expression in America that we say, kicking the can down the road. That means that you're not dealing with the problem right now. You're not dealing with the uncomfortable conversation. You're not telling your son or daughter that you are, you know, hurt by something that they said earlier in the day. You're not telling your husband that, you know, you don't want to be as close to, you know, his side of the family because they bring you down and they make you feel uh, negative about yourself or other things, whatever it might be. So when we address and check in with our unpleasant feelings, that's actually the time that sometimes inspired action comes up to the surface and we say, we might want to address this thing. We might want to take action on it. And that's scary. That's scary for people sometimes because it's easier to just bury it and put it down. So that's on the mental side of it is first checking in throughout the day and feeling really what we get a chance to feel. So we don't enter into sleep having to deal with that tsunami of those thoughts all at the same time. So I was going to pivot into health and the body for a quick second, unless if you had another question. I just have one thing that you made a very, um, it's a great practical tip, which you said that you can actually talk to yourself and say, hey, Deepa, so why are you feeling scared? So is that also something, see, in my case, I first go to my husband and I share all my vulnerabilities and almost, I don't even need him to reassure me just the act of speaking it out and making it real makes it not appear as scary so of course is it that somebody could share it with somebody who's close to them a dear friend where uh, the other person knows that maybe they're not even expecting reassurance or advice but it's simply just giving them a listening ear Absolutely. And I think of these as tools in the toolbox. Talking to yourself is one tool in the toolbox. And again, there's research and evidence around this. If you want to look it up, uh, look up Dr. Kristen Neff and her self-compassion organization. I think it's selfcompassion.org. They've compiled a whole evidence base of studies around all these modalities. Another modality for some people, it doesn't work for me, but it works for a lot of people is journaling. Right. I think the thing about talking about it with uh, someone else is that it's important in that sense to let people know, especially if it's a spouse or a close friend, like you don't necessarily need advice. If the time for advice is there, you'll ask them. So I'll literally call my friends up and I'll say, hey, just listen to me. I don't need any advice. And they're used to this and they do it for me and I do it for them. So I think it's important because sometimes we don't even know what we feel until we say it out loud, until we write it down. So that's why it's important to use one of those tools that are in the toolbox. The other thing about telling a partner is that the reason that I like to have multiple tools in the toolbox, right? I like to have access to a few of them is that sometimes our partner is having a bad day or they're going through their own challenges and they can't necessarily be for, there for us. Or the other thing is that there's a, uh, one of the world's uh, most famous um, writers and authors on, on relationships and intimacy, Esther Perel, a friend of mine, she says that what we once used to rely on an entire village, we now rely on one person. So sometimes we rely too much on just one person in our life, which is our spouse or our partner. Nothing wrong with having just them, but again, we want multiple tools in the toolbox. So that could be having your partner, but also having a couple other friends so that you can get different perspectives and not always go to one person. 
and but i think it's also important that people do understand that i've seen a lot of people where there's um, maybe there's a lack of trust on who they share it with and then it comes back and it makes things much worse for them so it's definitely important to look at who can you actually trust with this and who's not going to maybe talk about it with somebody else and that's very critical because i have seen situations where something has become aggravated simply because it was shared with somebody perhaps outside a circle of trust yeah and i think part of that is also creating that trust and so that could be going to a person and uh, again you know people breaking trust as part of life and it's things that you know, we experience and we have to just, you know, it helps us grow and we figure it out. It's like we learn who to trust and not. But one thing that I'm very uh, keen on that I do with people is, especially if it's a, a new friend or somebody that's there, like I have a group of friends, uh, guy friends that get together every week and we call it man morning because we get together on Thursdays and we go hiking together. And in that circle, in that group, one of the things that we're big on is that when, whenever I invite somebody new, I tell them, hey, this is a trusted circle. What's, what we talk about in here stays inside of here. And we're all making that commitment. And it's important. And I'm doing that with a group, but I do that with individual friends too. It's like, hey, I want to have a conversation with you and share some stuff. But also, this is sensitive. Like, you know, I just want to make sure like this is all staying between us, right? And I do the same for you. And I'm asking you to do the same for me. So it's okay to tell people explicitly that that's what you what you need for sure so do you feel that there are any physiological roots of somebody who has chronic worry um yeah, so food lifestyle habits yeah absolutely so we know that the brain can impact the body right we we think of that as uh, psychosomatic right in in traditional medicine but there's also the opposite there's the, also, the, if it's psychosomatic, somato-psycho, where the body impacts the brain. And so things that are happening inside the body can also encourage or increase worry. So let's talk about a very practical example. So a very practical example is that, you know, many people in India, India drink tea or chai, right? Black tea. And a lot of people drink coffee too. So there's a lot of research that's out there. We know that the half-life of, let's say, a cup of coffee, which typically has about, you know, 40 to 50 milligrams of caffeine inside, we know for our body to process that and the half-life of coffee for a cup of coffee, and black tea is about comparable, it's going to take about five to seven hours for the half-life of that uh, caffeine to process inside of our body. Right. And there's pl plenty of calculators online where you can type in if you're somebody who drinks multiple cups of coffee a day, you can see, or multiple cups of chai a day, you can see how much caffeine you're getting and how long it takes. Now, we know that the longer that the caffeine is inside of our body, the more likely it is to encourage ang anxiousness and thoughts of worry. This is well documented and the literature is uh, quite available and out there. So this is why so many of the functional medicine doctors at my medical clinic recommend to our patients that they have a cutoff time of when they're consuming caffeine. Whether they're a fast metabolizer, some people genetically are a fast metabolizer of caffeine and some people are a slow metabolizer. And if you have availability to you know, genetic testing, 
it's pretty easy to find out and input your data into different websites that can tell you. Um, but whether you're a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer, usually that time period that our doctors share with the patients that are out there is they'll say, no caffeine past noon, right? So don't have any caffeine past noon. And if you are a slow metabolizer, you're somebody that's more caffeine sensitive, they'll even tell you like maybe 10 a.m. to cut it off by 10 a.m. Now, I know, you know, our house, our family has a house in India. And I know in India, when we travel around and we go to different families and we visit over there, you know, people are drinking sometimes tea and chai throughout the day and sometimes late at night. Even if, you will, even if you can still fall asleep, what we do know is just the presence of that caffeine circulating throughout your body is going to disrupt your ability to get deep rest. And it's also going to impact the, the quality of how quickly you fall asleep. So that's just a very practical example. And it's so simple, yet so many of us break that rule because of combination of different things. So that's the first aspect that I'd introduce that's very stop powerful. you for a second, Drew, because often I get clients telling me that I know you're telling me about caffeine. It's not that I'm, I need the caffeine. It's my time to sit with myself and sit. That's me. That's my nurturing for myself. And this can actually, and you're so right about chai in India because it can actually become as much as 10 cups in a day. For sure. Exactly. And so all that caffeine bubbling around, this is going to make us in, in functional medicine, they call it, you know, it can, it can make us more wired. And for some people who already have insomnia, they can end up being at a place where they're wired and tired, right? That's one example of the sleeplessness that people feel where they're both wired, their mind can't turn off, they're buzzing around, they're, you know, feeling frantic, but they're also tired because they can't get to sleep. So the combination of those two can be very stressful and worry can play into that. So that's an example. So for the habit change around that, you know, we just recently uh, had uh, Dr. BJ Fogg from Stanford University uh, did an episode with them. It's going to be out on our podcast soon. And one of the things that he talks about is the best way to, he has a book called Tiny Habits, the best way to replace a habit. So let's say you have, you know, you want to um, stop uh, having as much, uh, you know, chai or coffee throughout the day is well, stopping a habit and starting a habit is a little bit different. So I guess this would fall into stopping habits. So if we want to have a little less tea, if we do every day, if somebody's, let's say, at five cups of tea and they're having it all the way up until dinner, which a lot of people have it right after dinner, is that we're going to work backwards and we're going to start with that cup of tea that happens at the end of the evening and we want to try to replace it instead of caffeine or black tea or chai, we're going to try to replace it with something like an adaptogenic herb like dulci or ashwagandha tea. You know, I'm a big fan of Organic India, you know, the tea company and they have really great products and those adaptogenic teas you can still enjoy the behavior of sitting with your family and enjoying. Sometimes I see people that are so addicted that they actually do a half cup of black tea and a half, tea, half cup of ashwagandha in the beginning because they just need the taste and they'll slowly, slowly wind it down, wind it down. And you slowly start replacing those items and you reward yourself for that, right? So you figure out whatever a small reward is. Maybe it's a tiny piece of black cho uh, dark chocolate. Maybe it's you get to do something fun or you literally pat yourself on the back. The studies all show that when you're trying to change your habits, you go slowly and you figure it out frequently, but you also reward yourself in the process. So coffee's the first thing. Now, another aspect that doesn't get a lot of attention 
is also sometimes there are nutrients that are missing from our diet that can often play a role. And again, I know you work a lot with your uh, uh, clients that you work with. And one of the most common ones that's going to be there is magnesium, right? And magnesium deficiency, which many people are deficient in, you know, magnesium has over 420 documented uh, um, processes in the body where it's the catalyst of bringing something together. And a lot of those processes have to do with slowing down, relaxing our muscles, relaxing our body and relaxing our brain. So sometimes when there's extreme nutrient deficiencies or even mild nutrient deficiencies, these are also things that prevent us from slowing down naturally. And instead, we get more caught up in being wired. And I know you could probably speak to it a lot better than I can about you know, the other nutrients that if we're deficient in can prevent us from the rest and relaxation portion of the day. And I think, Drew, also normally whenever I prescribe magnesium, nobody's ever had it in their life. And the first thing you get is that, do you really need these things? But people are also in India predominantly on a very high sugar diet. So if you actually look at their plate from morning to night, it's a mono diet most of the time where starch and sugar is high. And when you're on a diet which is so high in sugar, that's one of the biggest reasons why you have severe magnesium depletion in the first place. And sugar depletes so many nutrients required for sleep and relaxation. And of course, magnesium is one of those primary uh, nutrients, but I think it's uh, deeply linked to how much sugar people are eating. And I think there's also a high level of deficiency in omega-3, B12 and iron and all of that play a role in anxiety and worry as well. Exactly. You know, the thing about sleep and worry is that a lot of these things are either super low cost to address it or free, like checking in with yourself. And sometimes in societies, we've gotten so far away from the natural rhythms of the day and the natural diets that we once were eating, where now everything has sugar inside of it, that all these little habits build up and they completely take over and hijack normal functions and processes like getting to bed. You know, our body wants to rest. Rest is where, let's talk even big picture, rest and sleep are so important to the repair process. Our body goes into deep DNA repair. Our brain has its own detoxification system called the glymphatic system, where it removes a lot of the trash and the waste and the buildup that's there uh, in the evening that accumulated throughout the day because our brain takes up so much of a percentage, of a high percentage of our total energy use in the body that's there. So our body is literally going in and cleaning and going into deep DNA repair. And it may seem like a light thing if you're not sleeping very well, or it may seem like, oh, it's not that big of a deal if I'm worrying a lot at night and it takes me an extra two hours to fall asleep. But over a period of time, these things will age you early. They will make you more likely to develop chronic diseases in the long term. They'll make you more likely to not be as mentally resilient in the day. And all that has an impact on our mood, on our happiness and our total sense of joy uh, that's there. There's one other thing on the health side that I want to talk about, if that's okay. Yes, please. So you hinted to it 
you hinted towards it earlier. Another thing that we do that's very low cost intervention and very, you know, straightforward to address, although it does take some habit change, is there's been a lot of research around eating late. Uh, Seichin Panda, who's here in San Diego, and does a lot of uh, the work around um, the different um, systems in our body and how they have, exactly, how they have their own rhythms. Exactly, exactly. He's shown in mouse models, you know, they haven't applied this yet to humans, but anecdotally, people can try it out and see if this, if they notice a difference, that each organ in our body has its own natural rhythms. And when we do things like the, um, there was an article in the New York Times that summarized it perfectly by a friend of mine, Anahat O'Connor. He said, when we eat might be just as important as what we eat. Right. based on this this research that's there. So what he found out is that when you eat very late consistently, which again, people do all over the, the world, I will say that I tend to notice it a little bit more when I am in India, that people tend to eat a little bit later. My cousins and family that are there are kind of going out at night. They're eating a little bit later. But I was also just in Argentina recently, and they have a culture where dinner doesn't start until 10 p.m., Nobody eats. Nobody's at restaurants. Fast asleep by then. <laughs> exactly. So my girlfriend and I were there in January and people don't eat until 10 p.m. And that part of that is because they're taking a siesta earlier in the day. But a lot of the research has shown that when you eat really late, it disturbs the quality of sleep. And there's something about eating. And when our digestive system is active, because our digestive system takes up so much energy, our brain, and you can notice this for yourself, our brain also starts to fire up. Our brain starts to fire up and starts to send nerve signals. Now, I don't know all the mechanisms of this and can't speak to it on a scientific level, but there is a connection again between the vagal nerve, between the brain and the gut. And when our gut is very active and taking up energy from the rest of the body, sometimes our brain can be active. And also it's harder for our brain to get into, again, it's the balance of both, but it's harder for it to get into the rest and relaxation mode. And that can increase worry too. So simply by not eating as late as we normally do, that plays a huge role on our physiological health, which will impact our mental health. I want to tell you two things before I go to the next question, which is um, I come from the Brahmin community and in uh, my ancestors and even just my grandparents, there was always this culture of eating a brunch at 10 a.m. and eating an early dinner by 5.30 or 6. So those were the only two meals which a Brahmin community traditionally used to do. So 10 a.m. would be this sumptuous meal with everything. And that was the meal that got you through the whole day. And then you'd probably have some light fruit sometime at around 4 o'clock and then an early dinner by 6 and then the kitchen was closed. So I think that's where also when intermittent fasting suddenly came up in a huge way. I remember uh, doing a video saying this was the way my grandparents used to eat and we should just when in doubt think about our ancestors. And the second thing through this, there is a sweet spot though when you say light dinner and people eating heavy. I've also seen the other way around where dinner when it's light now what do we mean by light if somebody in india were just eating uh, two three idli so idlis is this fermented rice uh, 
um, I don't know if you've had idli. Like a rice cake. Yep, I've had it. It's delicious. Yeah. So if you have idli and you take away the other components of the plate, which is the coconut chutney and the sambar and the ghee for the fat, and you're eating just a few idlis with a little bit of pasted tomatoes, I've seen the other way as well because I've eaten like that when I've had to go to someone's house and I found myself waking up by midnight feeling anxious, very, very hungry because it's a, uh, there's no fat, there's no protein. It's a pretty high sugar, high glycemic index meal. So people think that they're eating light, but that too light can also trigger a very similar response. Exactly. We want to avoid the foods, especially that are going to spike our blood sugar because that's going to create all this activity and our body has the ability to run on fat or has the ability to run on glucose. And we get this spike of insulin that comes into our body and our brain just goes, 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 just like a kid who gets a sugar rush. So we have to look and really look at the nutritional breakdown of the foods that we're eating, especially at night, but also throughout the day and see if the things that we're eating are actually going to just spike our blood sugar and throw off our ability to slow down as the day starts to decrease and it's time for bed. Exactly. And now, you know, a lot of times, a gentle approach towards handling worries, simple things that people can do. And I've got so many in my mind, but often I find that these kind of gentle tools are both undervalued as well as not used because people usually gravitate towards um, very heavy duty therapies which could involve even medication which is not all the time required. I'm I'm not saying I'm anti-medication for things like anxiety but I feel that that's a space that somebody should come to once they've tried everything else. So if your food is not in place and you've not managed your nutrient deficiencies and I ask this question to people who are working with diagnosed mental conditions where they're not even looking at uh, nutrient deficiencies as root causes of these symptoms. So high level of B12 deficiency, omega-3, iron, all of that. So are there any gentle, soft approaches that people could do for themselves, which could have a great impact in uh, helping them to manage worry and anxiety? And they're really powerful, but I think you should share whether somebody could bring in some of these gentler approaches. Yeah, absolutely. So we already talked about a few. I have a few more that are actually really powerful and more... Um, for acute situations where you're lying in bed and you really just cannot understand why your mind is going, 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 going. So oftentimes our brain, which has stuff on its mind, will say, you got to think about this. You got to think about this because the fear is also right before bed that we forget about it. We forget about it and we go on the next day. So if that's the case, another tool in the toolbox that we can pull out is we could do something that's called a mind dump a mind dump. We're going to take everything in our mind and we're going to dump it on paper. And here's the practicality of how to do it. So let's say you're winding down for bed and you notice that you're starting to really feel worried. So my recommendation, um, you know, we already know, and there's a lot of research out there about 
you know, not having electronic usage like right before bed, our phone stimulating, all that stuff is going to make us a little bit more anxious and worried. So I'm not going to go into that and blue lights. But let's say we have all of our electronic equipment outside of the, the bed. I'll go get a sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper with a pencil or a pen, I'll just start writing down a list, a list of just everything that's on my mind. Okay. I forgot to address this. I forgot to address that, whatever it might be. Oh, is this going to be okay? Even whether it's a to do or it's a, just a general worry or anxiety. I'm not sure how that podcast is going to do. I'm not going to do that. All the fears and worries that take over our brain are the ones that are unrecognized. As soon as that we recognize them and we check in and we give them a name and we give them a face and we put them on paper and we write them down, there's something about that that our brain says, okay, it's documented, it's written, it's there. So sometimes, the thing is, if you're doing it right and you haven't done it for a while, don't be surprised if sometimes you're writing for like 30 or 40 minutes. I've had people say like, wow, I just started writing and all this stuff was on my mind. Okay, great. Let it come out and have a place for it. Then there's a ritual that you, the ritual is you fold up that piece of paper, right? Write a heart on it or something if you want to, right? And go and take that piece of paper and go put it outside your bedroom. So take it physically and don't leave it in the bedroom. Don't leave it by your dresser. Don't leave it anywhere around you. Go take it, go put it by your desk or go put it on the kitchen table or go put it somewhere else outside the room. And say to yourself out loud, tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow is another day and you put it down and then you come back. That soft intervention of giving our brain an opportunity to document on paper, that's the key, not on electronics because that blue light is going to be stimulating. You're going to have the tendency to maybe want to check social media. You're going to see other messages. You're going to see emails, whatever it might be. That's not going to help in the process of slowing down. So we're going to write it on paper. We're going to do a mind dump, dump everything in our head down, take it physically, put it outside the room and say, tomorrow's another day, and then come back. That is extremely helpful in this process where our brain especially is in this place where it feels like I got to keep on reminding you, reminding you because you might forget. So that's one. The next item that is, again, I think highly underrated, especially in the land where it originated from, is to find some version of a mindfulness or meditation practice that works for you. A mindfulness or a meditation practice that works for you. It's crazy, and I don't want to generalize, but I am going to, so I guess I am going to generalize. I find that my friends and family um, that are in America who are Indian are, are way more interested than my friends and family that are in India when it comes to meditation. And you know, to India's defense, that's many countries with a lot of different things, right? So in the US, you know, the US is the world's oldest democracy, right? There's a way to look at a country's political age. Um, you know, India's age is based on independence of when it happened, which was 50, what was India's independence? 48, right? So India, 47. So India is younger than America when it comes to its de democratic age, how long it's been a democracy. And in America right now, you see on the news what we're dealing with, right? Basic freedom around blacks and minorities and individuals who have been oppressed over the years. So it's in the nature, you know, Eckhart Tolle had this great quote. He said, it's in the nature of the universe for us to have something, right? We grew up with it. We had it. Maybe it even came from us like India is the land of meditation and a lot of Ayurveda. It's in the nature of us to have something, 
lose it. We lose it through whatever circumstances. We forget about it. We prioritize other stuff. And then when we find it again, which is what's happening now, I really do believe in many parts of the world, especially in India when it comes to meditation and yoga and things like that, when we find it again, we find it at a deeper level because when we first knew it, we kind of took it for granted. Right. And when we find it at a deeper level, we truly understood it. It's even with my own journey. You know, I also come from the Brahmin tradition on one side of my family and my mom comes from the Jain tradition. My parents are very, you know, into things like meditation. So from the time that I was young enough to sit up by myself, my dad would make me do some puja and meditation with him in the morning. And I completely rebelled. <laughs> I was kind of forced to do it. And my dad told me that I had to do it. And then at the age of 16, at the age of about 14, 15, 16, he said, look, if this is something that you don't want to do, you don't have to do it. And I said, I don't want to do it. I have zero interest in it. Now, the thing is, I had zero interest because we were doing it just because it was part of the culture. We weren't, I wasn't doing it because I understood. Nobody told me about the brain or the science or other stuff because my dad didn't know. He was just doing what his dad taught him. Right. Then later on, actually through the Jain community and going to Jain conferences and learning about meditation through there, and one of my early mentors, Gurudev Chitrabanaji, who has uh, since passed a couple of years ago, I actually started to learn about the why the why of meditation. This is why podcasts and what you're doing is so important because if we don't understand why we're doing what we're doing, then I, we're never going to do it long-term. For sure. So when we understand why, then we can get into it at a deeper level. So that's what's happening now. We are understanding the why of these things. So on the side of meditation, the biggest component that so many of my friends that are meditation teachers say is that the goal is, especially at night, when you have thoughts of worry, if you are first starting off with a mindfulness or a meditation practice, know that in the beginning, it's going to feel like it's increasing your thoughts of worry. It's going to feel like it's increasing them because you are actually just being aware of what's happening. Now, the more aware we are and the more that we sit with it, whether it's breathing or mantra, after a while, and this is what the Buddha taught us, and so many of the saints from the Indian tradition, they taught us that if we're still and we just observe, then those worries and anxieties start to calm down on their own. The goal of meditation and mindfulness is not to quiet your mind. You know, there's this, there's this idea that often came, it's like to be practicing meditation, we have to be in the Himalayas and sitting on there and just our mind is quiet and we have no thoughts, right? That's not what meditation is. Meditation is just observing what we're feeling and letting it come to the surface. And then the Buddha had this great analogy. He said, if you jump into a lake and there's all these ripples that are there, the way to have the ripples and the lake calm down or the pond calm down is not to smack the ripples and say, stop having thoughts, stop having thoughts. That's just going to create more ripples. Instead, if we just jump in the lake and there's the initial ripples, we just stand and we wait. And eventually those ripples will subside and the lake will calm down. And that's the power of having a mindfulness or meditation practice. So if somebody were to plan a whole day, what should their routine be like from the time they wake up to the time they fall asleep? If they want to bring chronic worry into some sort of calming down, what should their daily routine look like? So talk us through a whole day of somebody who's struggling with chronic worry. Yeah, so everybody's different, of course, and there's the whole personalization piece, 
but I'm going to give some big picture things that I've seen work with my community and also some big picture things that the doctors at our medical clinic give to their patients that are there. So the first thing is, if we want to have a strong evening routine, we have to have a morning routine. So how we end the day has a lot to do with how we start the day. So when it comes to the morning, the first things that we want to look at that are part of a powerful morning routine that are going to help us uh, wind down later in the day is at a time that's appropriate and it's a little bit different for men and women and everybody's a little bit different is that we want to have some sort of movement in the morning having some sort of movement to activate the body, wake up a little bit. And again, that doesn't have to be 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. in the morning. It could be at 10 a.m. It could even be sometime before noon that we're getting some sort of movement or activity in the day, even if it's light level. I'm not even saying that it has to be that we're sweating, although that does work very well for a lot of people, including myself. Getting some sort of movement and incorporating that into our day is going to be very uh, effective in helping us wind down a little later on. Now, the other thing that's very important as part of a morning uh, routine is that instead of starting our day with things that spike our blood sugar, we want to eat things that are more balancing. We want to focus on more fats, proteins, and we want to focus on the carbs that come from vegetables, not the carbs that come from breads and bagels and muffins and whatever else is there and having a lot of sugar in our diet. Because again, how we start the morning has a big impact that's there throughout the day. The other thing that I'm going to add in is that setting an intention for the day. Every day, even during the pandemic, which is very challenging and a lot of people are going through tough times right now, and there's a lot more increased worries that are on their head, we all want to ask ourselves in the morning, what do we want our day to stand for? What do we want to this day to mean in our life? And so even setting a light attention, uh, intention, like today is all about rest and recovery because I've had a few challenging weeks. So I need to just put out the intention for rest and recovery. Or today is about self-compassion because I've been too hard on myself over the last few days. So I'm going to focus on self-compassion. Or today is all about energy and joy and giving back to people. Whatever it is for you, setting that intention in the day is going to help you, especially when you have things that are going to try to throw you off your intention, like a difficult, challenging conversation or something on social media you see that throws you off. An intention is an important part of the day. So, I mean, each one of these could be its own podcast, so I'm not going to go too much into detail for them. But I think having the right food in the morning, having some movement, and setting the intention for the day is all things that are successfully part of a morning routine that'll benefit us throughout. Now, the next thing is I incorporate a practice for myself called falling still. Falling still is between major activities in the day. So let's say you're leaving work or you're just about to get into work or you're just about to take a break from things or you just dropped off your son or daughter to school and you're about to transition. So think about major times in the day that you transition. What I do is I do a practice called falling still that a mentor of mine, Serrano Kelly, taught me. And it's just a light mindfulness exercise. So I'll just sit. If I'm in my car, I'll just sit in my car. If I'm in my chair at the office, I'll sit in my chair in the office. I'll put my feet on my floor and I'll put my hands on my knees. You can even do it right now if you wanted to. And then all I'm doing is I'm being aware of my breath. Sometimes I close my eyes. Sometimes I don't. And I just simply, I watch my breath coming in and I watch my breath going out. And I watch my breath coming in. 
and I watch my breath coming out. So I'll do this for literally two, three, four minutes. This doesn't take a long time. But just even in me taking a break here while we're still doing the podcast, in this moment, I feel it. Why that's so important is that so many times during the day, if we go back to the beginning of this conversation on the podcast and the eight unpleasant feelings that Dr. Joan Rosenberg talks about, sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, disappointment, frustration, vulnerability, embarrassment. So many times we take the energy from one situation into the energy into the next situation. Our child is not acting properly in the morning in the way that we expect them to act. And then we're just about to get into a work meeting and we're taking all the frustration that we have with our child into the work meeting that's there. And so we're being snappy with people. We're being less creative. We're being less excited in work. So we want to prevent the momentum from one situation, the stuff that we don't want to take with us, from going into the next situation that's there. And I might do this two or three times during the day. Even that light level check-in. And sometimes after that, I feel that I feel sadness or I feel disappointment or I feel frustration. That's a good thing. At least I'm aware and present. And then I can go back to that toolbox that we talked about in the beginning of the conversation and decide if I want to employ one of those tools like calling a friend, talking out, to, out loud to myself, putting my hand on my chest or anything else that's there like journaling. So if we're checking in with ourselves throughout the day, that's going to help us in the evening. I mentioned the coffee piece, so we're not going to have any coffee or tea, right? Right. And if you're new to this, you know, don't try to do it in one shot. Wind down over a period of time and reduce the level of caffeine that's there. And then lastly, I'm going to talk about evening routine. An evening routine, what seems to work very well based on the studies and the evidence that's there is we're not going to eat anything two to three hours before we're going to go to bed. That's like the final cutoff time. Some people do even earlier than that. I know I function best when I'm finished dinner by about 7 p.m., right? So I have like dinner at six and I'm done by seven. So I have plenty of time. I have three hours because I usually sleep at 10. I have three hours where I'm not eating anything. And if I'm drinking, I'm just drinking a little bit of water here and there, which is important for our, our gut health is not having too much stuff inside of our stomach. The other thing about an evening routine that's there is that we don't want to go from, you know, excitement and work and technology and everything like that to immediately then trying to go to sleep and wind down. So the other thing that we do inside of our household is we'll say like an hour before, right, we're going to start dimming the lights. In some rooms, we might even put on candles, you know, instead of having the lights on that are there. We're going to start to get away from technology. We're not going to be watching TV and, and things that are there. If we want to, you know, watch TV, we'll try to get done the movie or the TV show or whatever, you know, at least an hour before we're ready to go to bed. We're going to minimize our exposure to blue light technology that's out there because that blue light seems to be very stimulating and makes it harder for our body to start producing melatonin that helps us naturally start to wind down. And then if you have a journaling practice or if your mind is starting to be anxious, I would say 30 minutes before bed, start that mind dump. Start putting things down that you feel that are unresolved and actually say to yourself, you did your best you knew how today. There may be things that you didn't get a chance to get done. That's okay. Tomorrow's another day and we get a chance to tackle this all tomorrow. So lastly, one thing that uh, I want to be more regular about, but we do pretty well. We do it at least a couple times a week. My partner and I, before we go to bed, we'll share three things we're grateful for. And that gratitude 
has our mind. You know, our brain is like a detective. It's always going to look for the evidence that we have it focus on. So worrying, the challenging with, thing with worrying is that worrying creates more worrying. Because as soon as we start to worry, our brain says, okay, what do I have to pay attention to? What else do I have to worry about? So one practical way, in addition to mindfulness and meditation, is gratitude. When we tell our mind to look for what to be grateful for, it now starts to know and see that it's safe. Gratitude creates a response inside the body where it says, okay, I can relax because if I'm not worried right now and I actually can take the time for gratitude, then it must be okay. There's no tiger that's trying to chase me. There's nobody that's out to get me. Because if we tell our body through our brain by practicing gratitude, it just lets our cells in every single portion, in every organ in our body, it lets our cells know that it's okay. Life is okay. We're okay. So we'll go back and forth and we'll just share three things we're grateful for. And then now we're ready for bed. So that's kind of what a routine looks like. It sounds like a lot of stuff. Don't try to tackle it all at the same time. Just pick tiny little things that you can incorporate. But eventually, because this impacts my sleep so much for the better, it's second nature. It's kind of like when you first started driving, you had to pay attention to everything. For sure. Now you don't even think about it. So that's what it's like. And then I wake up the next day excited, supercharged, and ready to tackle the day and go for anything that I want to go for. And I think gratitude brings with it a feeling of surrender. Uh, I, I'm not talking about religion, but just a feeling of trust in what's going on. And that surrender can release fear. So I think there's that deep connection between gratitude, surrender, and fear release. What do you feel is the biggest root cause of poor sleep? You know, I think for a lot of people, they're going to get the biggest bang for their buck by focusing on their diet, right? Because we know that when your blood sugar is kind of like a roller coaster throughout the day, that has all sorts of consequences on sleep. It also does when it comes to diagnosed sleep disorders, we have mild apnea to chronic apnea, sleep apnea. And chronic sleep apnea, we typically think about, you know, usually an overweight male, right? mostly wet male, but obviously it can impact women too. That's the vision that we have in our head. But we did a podcast with a dentist who's one of the world's experts in sort of mild apnea that a lot of women go through because of their diet and jaw structure, they become mouth breathers. And breathing through your mouth throughout the night instead of through our nose produces less nitrous, nitrous oxide for the body, which creates a whole sort of... Uh, um, sympathetic nervous system response where our body gets into this chronic cortisol spikes or other stuff because we're not getting the proper amount of oxygen. It's a little bit more of a complicated topic in sleep, uh, but if anybody's curious, I'm sure you can direct them to different resources that are out there. But we did a podcast uh, with Dr. Mark Berhenna on this mild sleep apnea that many people are going through that often doesn't get diagnosed and it's related to mouth breathing that's there. But anyways, I digress a little bit. I think the biggest things that are there are going to be diet. Most people are going to see the biggest bang for their buck in sleep improvements by focusing on their diet and when they eat. If you could only do two things, I would start off first with focusing on dialing into the right diet and not spiking your blood sugar throughout the day and getting more higher quality nutrient foods there and also not eating as late. That seems to be the biggest bang for the buck. Then next I would go to 
you know, meditation and some of the mindfulness exercises that are there. You know, India, for example, has had uh, some lower rates comparatively to the rest of the world when it came to uh, Alzheimer's, for example. And there's a lot of different thoughts, you know, social connections and other things like that, the valuing of elders, but also the inclusion of uh, highly anti-inflammatory, you know, spices and foods like turmeric and other things like that that are very protective to the brain. But my biggest fear that's happening now is that as more of the Western bad habits are coming to that tradition and background, and it seems to be that they're magnified a little bit, at least when I go to India, like India has out of the top 50 most polluted cities in the world, 11 of those cities are in India. And we already know that pollution can wreak all sorts of havoc on our health that's there. Then the diet is very highly sugar, you know, so, so, it's, a, so it's an extreme amount of sugar. I would say more so than my family in India that's there, you know, God bless them again, their sugar content is so much higher than the same families that we would have over here from, from the, um, my family that lives here in America. Then the next thing is that eating, eating late seems to be something, again, that is, is very perpetualized over there. Again, these are generalizations and people have to individualize them for their family. So the biggest concern is that when all these things magnify, that's why we're seeing so much of the health that was once there in India completely radically shifting to the opposite side where India is now, I think, second to um, some of the Middle Eastern countries in Mexico, the fastest rate of diabetes and diabetes. So all these things are happening in India. And so we don't study. If sleep is the new medicine, we have to give it the love and attention it deserves by researching and getting educated because these habits didn't develop overnight and they're not going to stop overnight. We got to get educated and slowly one by one, try them and see how much more our life improves by focusing on the most fundamental thing that we all do every day, which is sleep. Thanks for being my guest today, the very first guest. And it was a Mm. great pleasure having you here today. Deepa, I'm so excited for everything that you're working on. I'm so, exi- I'm so excited that you're putting yourself out there. You know, putting out a project like this takes you out of your comfort zone. You know, you have to be forward and in front of the camera. And, but that's what the world needs right now. They need people like you who are showing them the different tools that are available that they can try and see to improve their life. So it was an honor to be on the podcast. I'm honored to be the first episode. Thank you for inviting me here. And also, I thank you for your work and what you're doing for the community. In this episode, Dhruv took us through understanding worry while leaving us with simple and actionable tools to navigate worry and have great sleep. Caffeine is an important conversation. It is a big trigger for worry. In Ayurveda, Caffeine is dehydrating and increases vata dosha, which when aggravated shows up as worry. Vata also needs stability and foundation of routine, which is what Dhruv described perfectly. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and have a great day. This podcast is intended to provide helpful and informative material on the subject matter covered in the episodes. The podcast is not acting in the capacity of a doctor or a registered dietitian and is not rendering any professional healthcare or medical service. 
The information in the podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice or services or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition. The advice and tools contained herein may not be suitable for your situation. Any medical questions regarding contraindications and cautions or any questions on whether or not to proceed with any practices provided in the show should be referred to qualified health professionals before adopting the same. The podcast specifically disclaims any responsibility for any liability, loss, risk, personal or otherwise which may be incurred as a direct or indirect consequence of the use of information from this podcast or the application adoption of any of the information provided